Welcome to TanakhStudy.com. My name is Jonathan Snowbell, and today we will be learning the third section of Parshat Ba'alotacha. We will begin in Perak Tet, Pasuk Tet Vav, the chapter 9, the 15th verse. Uviyom hakim et hamishkan, kisa he'anan et hamishkan le'ohel ha'idut, uva'erev yeh al hamishkan kemare esh ad boker. Ken yihye tamid he'anan yechasenu umare esh layla. ולפי העלות הענן מעל האוהל, ואחריכן יישאו בני ישראל, ובמקום אשר ישכון שם הענן, שם יחנו בני ישראל. על פי אדוני יישאו בני ישראל, ועל פי אדוני יחנו. כל ימי אשר ישכון הענן על המשכן יחנו, ובהעריך הענן על המשכן ימים רבים, ושמרו בבני ישראל את משמרת אדוני, ולא יישאו. Now on the day that the משכן was erected, the cloud covered the, the Mishkan, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the Mishkan until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day, and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of Hashem, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of Hashem, they would camp, as long as the cloud settled over the Mishkan, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the Mishkan for many days, the sons of Israel would keep Hashem's command and not set out. As we mentioned in our introductory shir on Sefer Bamidbar, these verses are a clear throwback to the very end of Sefer Shemot, almost word for word as we will demonstrate. By us it says, Uviyom hakim et hamishkan. And in Shmot, Perak Mem, the 40th chapter, it says, Which once again takes us back to the date earlier than the beginning of Sefer Bemidbar, as we've discussed previously. The continuation of the Pasuk, And in the 40th chapter of Shmot, by us, and there, at the end of the 40th chapter, the fire is mentioned, although slightly more understated in Shemot than it is here where it's mentioned twice. Tamid, it will always be like this. Now this seems somewhat repetitive, and no parallel verse seems to exist in Shemot, in the 40th chapter. However, the concept tamid, constantly, always, combined with the cloud and fire, is reminiscent of another verse in Shemot, describing a similar phenomenon. Lo yamish amud he'anan yomam ve'amud ha'esh la'ila lifnei ha'am. This is referring to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. As soon as B'nai Israel left Mitzrayim, as the verse is said, just as the nation left Egypt triumphantly before the splitting of the sea, our first exposure to the fire and cloud in the wilderness. And parallel in Shemot, This verse doesn't have a parallel. In Sefer Shemot, Sefer Shemot does not describe what happens when Bnei Israel camp. Uveha'arich he'anan ala mishkan yabim rabim velo yisau. 
And parallel in Shemot, V'im lo velo yisu ad yom he'aloto. The question is, why is it necessary to repeat this formulation? It's very nice that there's a parallel between Bimidbar and Shemot, but once we've said it in Shemot, why do we need to say it again here? The description in Shemot is the culmination of the Mishkan. The culmination of the building process of the Mishkan, and in that vein, the Torah tells us that among other functions of the Mishkan, the Mishkan is the center of the traveling apparatus of B'nai Israel. The description here is a practical and contextual one. We are now in Sefer Bimidbar. The camp is organized as we described. Travel is imminent. How does that happen? The Torah tells us here how it happens. Now the Torah goes into detail as to the principle that was laid down in verse 19 about if the clouds stayed over the Mishkan for different periods of time, B'nai Israel stayed put. So we now move on to verse 20. V'yesh, asher yihyeh he'anan yamim mispar ala mishkan, alpi Adonai yahanu, ve'alpi Adonai yisa'u. V'yesh, asher yihyeh he'anan me'arvad boker, v'na'ala he'anan baboker v'nasa'u, o yomam v'layla, v'na'ala he'anan v'nasa'u. O yomayim, o chodesh, o yamim, beha'arich he'anan ala mishkan, lishkon ala v'yahanu v'na Yisrael, v'lo yisa'u. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabern- over the Mishkan, according to the command of Hashem, they remained camped. Then according to the command of Hashem, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a year that the cloud lingered over the Mishkan, staying above it, the sons of of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of Hashem, they camped. And at the command of Hashem, they set out. They kept Hashem's charge, according to the command of Hashem, through Moshe. What is the need for the detail in these verses? Why could we have not just been told the principle in verse 19, when the cloud moves, B'nai Israel travels, when it stays put, they do not travel? Why the need for the blow-by-blow examples? A few days, one day, two days, a month, a year? Ramban and Sforno claim that the detail is praising Am Yisrael. Whether it was to their liking or not, B'nai Israel did as they were told. They came to a pleasant place, set up the Mishkan, began getting their lives in order, wanted to rest, but were told to move after on after a day or two, they complied. They dwelled in a less pleasant place, they complied, and did not move until the cloud moved. The seemingly repetitive detail is not. It describes the unsettling nature of this existence and tells us that B'nai Israel complied. But let us now focus on one verse in particular, verse 22. O yomayim, o chodesh, o yamim. Two days, or a month, or days. Literally, yamim is translated as days. What does days mean? Rashi, Rasag, Ibn Ezra all agree that this term means an entire year. Rashi quotes a verse from Vayikra, yamim tiye geulato. 
with regard to the rebuying of a house in a walled city that has a one year, one the, the original buyer has one year to redeem the house. That proves this claim. But internally, this makes sense as well. There's a progression from days to months to what? What's next after months? The next progression seems to be a year. But this verse should be shocking to us. B'nai Israel are all ready to enter Eretz Israel shortly. According how, how long? Maybe days? According to the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, it takes 11 days to get from Har Sinai to the entrance to Eretz Israel. But let us say weeks or months top. Why should they be camping anywhere for a year? Seemingly this verse knows that B'nai Israel will sin and not go into Eretz Israel for a long time. Foreshadowing. We discussed this topic briefly in our first Shi'ur in Sefer Bemidbar, but we'll examine it more thoroughly here. The foreshadowing here seems to be on two levels. One, we already mentioned, camping for a year. See, camping for a year seems to be completely unnecessary if B'nai Israel are shortly about to enter Eretz Israel. On a second level, the combination of the words O Yomayim, O Chodesh, O Yamim rings familiar, for those who have already read the Torah, in the continuation of our parasha in the 11th chapter, in verse 19, it hints to one of the following stories in, in which B'nai Israel sin and demand meat, and God says He will give them meat. Lo Yom Echad, velo Yomayim, notice the Yomayim, not for two days, velo Hamisha Yamim, the Yamim, Velo Asara Yamim, again the Yamim, Velo Esrimov Ad Chodesh Yamim, again the Chodesh, there seems to be a literary connection. How do we relate to this foreshadowing? Is it even to be considered foreshadowing? In order to understand that question, we need to ask the following question. Besides the young child who learns the Torah for the first time, we the students of Torah who learn the Torah year in and year out are familiar with the entire Torah. But how are we supposed to relate to the Torah? Is the Torah to be, to be read linearly, as if we were reading it without knowledge of what happens in subsequent chapters? And then this is foreshadowing, because only when we read the following chapters do we realize that something special has happened here. Or is the Torah to be read as one unit that we all know the end of the story, and the Torah is not foreshadowing, but merely tapping into eventual information in order to give a complete picture. Let's examine this with another example from Sefer Shemot on a related topic. In Shemot 16 is the story of the man. There are more than one example of foreshadowing in that story. But perhaps the most noticeable one describes at the end of that episode that Ben Israel ate the man for 40 years till they reached Eretz Israel. This information makes no sense to the reader of Sefer Shemot for the first time. If we assume the Torah is to be read as one unit, then the Torah, while describing the man, is tapping into eventual information in order to give a complete picture of the man. However, if the Torah is to be read linearly, then this line makes no sense. Why would B'nai Israel eat the man for 40 years? Why would the Torah leak this information at this juncture? If we adopt a linear approach, one could suggest that by foreshadowing, the Torah might be alluding to a failure in the episode of the man, perhaps by the nation, perhaps by Moshe, or perhaps by both, that is planting the seed for the complete failure at the sin of the spies that leads to the punishment of 40 years in the wilderness.
Coming back to our example, if the Torah is alluding to year or years in the plural in the wilderness, as opposed to days, weeks, or even months, which is the more accurate amount of time that should be expected to reach Eretz Yisrael, the question is why? What does this mean at this juncture? In the one-unit approach, the Torah is tapping into eventual information and telling us that at times they didn't travel and stayed put for over a year or years because, in fact, they ended up staying in the wilderness for 40 years. But in the linear approach, perhaps the answer is a similar one to what we said about the man. The Torah in these words, O Yomayim, O Chodesh, O Yamim, hints to, one, the fact that Bnei Israel will be in the wilderness for much longer than expected, and number two also alludes to the story of the sin of desiring meat and rejecting the man, and perhaps implying that the sin in that parasha is yet another stage, another unfortunate milestone of the unraveling towards the sin of the spies that ends up keeping Bnei Israel out of Israel in, for 40 years in the wilderness. The final verse in this section, verse 23, ends with the very familiar words, Alpi Hashem, Biad Moshe. We are familiar with these words from the lifting of the Sefer Torah. We say, Vizot HaTorah Asher Moshe Lifnei Bnei Yisrael, Alpi Hashem, Biad Moshe. But in fact, the first half of that statement is from Sefer Dvarim. And the second half, Alpi Hashem, Biad Moshe, is from Sefer Bamidbar. I personally only say the first half, when the Torah is lifted. But what is the meaning of this term, Alpi Hashem? Alpi Hashem means, by God's decision. And that seems to allude to what we have just read. The moving of the cloud is what B'nai Israel is, is what causes B'nai Israel to travel or to camp. And we read this several times throughout this section. Alpi Hashem Yachanu, Alpi Hashem Yisau. This is all done through God. And through God means through the cloud cover. But what does Biyad Moshe mean? Where was Moshe even mentioned in this section? What role does he play? Rashi brings a Midrash that describes the traveling of Bnei Israel being dependent on an additional factor besides the cloud cover. The cloud would not move until Moshe proclaimed, Rise up Hashem. This was referring to another well-known verse we say when we take out the Torah, a verse from later on in our parasha as well. And the Midrash continues to say that the stopping of the cloud was dependent on Moshe proclaiming, Thus, not only was their movement dependent on God and the cloud, Alpi Hashem, but it was dependent on Moshe's proclamation, and thus, Biad Moshe. Three questions must be raised with regard to this Midrash. In, attempt of, in attempting to justify the words Biad Moshe, one, the Midrash seems to be extreme in this regard, claiming that it was Moshe's proclamation that in fact allowed the cloud to move. This seems to contradict the verses we have just read that put the entire movement on the cloud cover on God. The verses, number two, the verses do not say that Moshe's words instigated the movement, quite the opposite. When the Aron, the Ark, traveled, then Moshe responded. Finally, the Midrash, while noticing the next parasha and mentioning it, seems to ultimately overlook it. What is the next parasha? Let's see. We now move over to the 10th chapter. 
וידבר אדוני אל משה לאמור, עשה לך שתי חצוצרות כסף מקשה תעשה אותם, והיו לך למקרא העדה ולמסע את המחנות. השם spoke further to משה, saying, make yourself two trumpets of silver, of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. God commands Moshe to make for himself, Aselecha, for his use, two silver trumpets. In verse 2, the Torah describes two of their purposes, assembling the nation and for traveling. How does assembling the nation work? We continue. V'taki'u bahen, v'no'adu eilecha kol ha'ida el petach o'el mo'ed. V'im b'achat yitka'u, v'no'adu eilecha hanesim rashay alfa Yisrael. When both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. We will return to these verses shortly. How does traveling work? Verse 5. But when you blow an alarm, a truah, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. When you blow a truah the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. A truah is to be blown for them to set out. The Torah seems to state that the trumpets were blasted, a truah, for the camps in the east, Yehuda, and in the south, Reuven. What about the other two, West, Ephraim, and North Dan? The Ramban derives from the words at the end of verse 7 that the trumpets were blasted for them as well. However, the Ibn Ezra points out that since Kehat traveled after Reuven and with them the Kohanim, who we will shortly read, were the ones who blew the trumpets, the Torah purposely omitted West and the western and northern camps because the Kohanim were not there to blow the trumpets for them. They had already traveled. The Ramban makes logical sense. How else would these two camps know when it was their turn to travel? On the other hand, the Ibn Ezra had good re- has a good read in the verses. The traveling of the west and north are in fact not mentioned in this context with a reasonable explanation regarding the absence of the Kohanim. However, going back to the question that we raised in the previous section, what is Alpi Hashem, Biyad Moshe? Perhaps we can now answer what Biyad Moshe is. If in fact God gave the signal to travel by the movement of the cloud cover, God necessitates not only a heavenly sign, but a human sign for travel. Moshe will give the order to blow the trumpets. These two signs are also different. The cloud gives a general indication to move, Alpi Hashem, but the trumpets give a specific order of when each camp should move, especially according to the Ramban that the trumpets notified each camp when to travel. Biyad Moshe. As we mentioned, the trumpets are Moshe's. Ase lecha. Verse 7. When the convening of the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding a truah. So what does uvehakil hakahal really mean? Is this verse a continuation of the previous two verses dealing with traveling, stating that upon the regathering of the camp, at the new destination, they blew at Kiah, but not a Truah? Or is this verse going back to the verses regarding the assembling of the nation, stating that in contrast to traveling, which is done through the Truah, the assembling, gathering of the nation is done through a Tkiah with no Truah? The latter is Rashi's interpretation. The verb Uvehakil and the noun Kahal do not appear in the context of assembling of the nation. 
There it says, Vino adu, lemikra, but not uvehakil. And the noun used there is eda and not kahal. Therefore, it appears to me that both are possible reads in the verses. Uvnei aharon hakoanim yitkeru bachatzotzerot, vayu lachem lechukat olam lidorotechem. The priestly sons of Aharon, moreover, shall blow the trumpets, and this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. The Torah describes the trumpets as a permanent mitzvah, which is not relevant to its usage in the wilderness, a temporary one. And in this vein, the following two verses give us two additional uses for the trumpets that are relevant in the long term. When you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before Hashem your God and be saved from your enemies. Also in the day of your gladness, and you're in your appointed feasts, and on the first days of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And they shall be as a reminder of you before God. I am Hashem, your God. We just read two opposite uses. In wartime, a tru'ah is blown. An alarm, as we translate it. And on a festive days, a tkiah is blown. A straight, simple sound. If we parallel this with what the Torah commands us in the previous verses regarding the camp, when the camp travels, we said we blew a tru'ah, an alarm. And when the camp assembles, we blew a tkiah. Is there a pattern here? The tkiah symbolizes harmony, togetherness. When there is an assembly, when there is something to celebrate, we blow a tkiah. The truah, the alarm in contrast, symbolizes disharmony, something jarring and unsettling. Therefore, when the camp has to travel, the truah is the predominant blast. It is an unsettling process to get up, pack, move your stuff, move to a new location. When a war comes, a tru'ah is blasted. When the Torah calls what we call today Rosh Hashanah, Yom Tiru'ah, Hazal immediately understand that this is not a happy day, but in fact a difficult day. A day of tru'ah means Yom Hadin, a day of judgment. Hazal, in their brilliance, derived from the verses here, and elsewhere, that as opposed to a tkiah that can be blown by itself, as per verse 7, a tru'ah is always enveloped with a tkiah before and after. If we look in our verses, we'll see it says, ut ka'atem tru'ah, alluding to a tkiah before the tru'ah, and then subsequently it says, tru'ah yitke'u. After the word Tura appears the word Yitke'u, implying Eitkiah afterwards. So too, the shofar and the trumpet blasts on Rosh Hashanah 
are have a truah which are enveloped with a tkiah before and after. And what is being taught to us? That a difficult situation in which an alarm must be blown, a truah must be blown, must be enveloped with something good before and after it. If traveling is difficult, unnerving, and unsettling, it is leading to a better place, closer to Eretz Yisrael. And that justifies that even though it is a truah, and even though it is unsettling, the envelopment of the truah with its kiyah before and after. If the day of judgment, Rosh Hashanah, is a difficult one in which we are being judged, as is described in great detail in Tanatokev, the Jewish people know to envelop it in a day which celebrates God's kingdom and dominion over the world. So now we have completed the two elements that teach us how to travel. The cloud cover, moving, and the blasting of the trumpets. <clears throat> and these lead us now, and what we will continue in our next uh, lesson, to the actual traveling of B'nai Israel, which we have been waiting for since the beginning of Sefer B'midbar.